Is the God of the Old Testament angry, sexist, or racist? Well, there are some who think that the God of the Old Testament certainly behaves badly, but what's really going on? Welcome to the God's Story podcast. My name is Brent Siddle, and my guest on the show is David Lamb, the Alan A. McRae Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Faculty at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. He previously worked in campus ministry with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and he's just published with IVP, InterVarsity Press America, an expanded version of his earlier book called God Behaving Badly. Is the God of the Old Testament angry, sexist, and racist? And here to tell us whether he is or he isn't is David. Hi, David. How are you? I am well, Brent. It's my pleasure to join you today. And it's uh, our pleasure to have you with us. Is the God of the Old Testament really angry, sexist, or racist then? Um, Yes, that's a hard question. Um, And hopefully we have a little bit of time to kind of flesh that out. A a friend of mine, um, when he heard the title of it, said, um, well, isn't the answer yes, yes, and yes? And, I, and he was, I, I tell people, he was a New Testament professor. So, um, but I think a lot of people wonder that. And if you read the book, you'd realize that I actually don't think that way, but I do think that a lot of people think that. And I think there are a lot of places in the Bible where it sure seems like that. And, um, you know, even as I try to make sense of some of them, I realize that you know, we can't fully comprehend God, and that's okay, but that doesn't mean we're not supposed to ask God tough questions and, and struggle with these things. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think he is, but I am troubled by what I find in the pages, um, uh, particularly the Old Testament. Yeah, what are some of the negative perceptions people have then about God, particularly in the Old Testament? Yeah, I think there, there is a lot. Um, I, uh, you know, I start out with angry, and and I think the, the, that is perhaps the one that people struggle with the most. I, I'm doing some research for another book that I'm kind of working on that will probably come out a year, a year from now on the emotions of God. But one of the things that was a little surprising to me to, was to realize that God is described as angry, wrathful, whatever, et cetera, almost as often as he is described as being loving and compassionate. So that one shows up a lot. And so, you know, you don't have to read very far to, to, to encounter some of these troubling characterizations of God. The, the thing I, 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 I try to be quick to point out when it comes to God's anger, though, is God is often described as being slow to anger and full of steadfast love. And I think the, perhaps one of the, the big differences when it comes to, to wrath between God and me, for example, and maybe many of us, is that um, I think a lot of us struggle with being quick to anger. And so God is slow to anger. And the the types of things that God gets angry about are the sorts of things that you would want somebody to get angry about. Injustice, um, oppression, when when people that are marginalized, the weak, the poor, the hungry, the the orphans are not being cared for. And and so those are are good things um, to get angry about. And so I think when we kind of go deep, on some of these problematic things, I think we, we realize that there's, um, there's more to it. And there's usually a, a, a really, actually a really good reason for why God is described in the way that he is. Yeah. Is there any tension between divine love and divine anger in the Old Testament? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's something that, that um, God almost 
struggles with himself. And we don't see a lot of glimpses where we, we get kind of God kind of debating with himself on that. But, you know, I, I think we, the, one of the texts I, I like to talk about a lot is um, Exodus 32. So the, the Israelites have just created the golden, you know, made the golden calf. I mean, Moses has spent a little bit too long up on, on Mount Sinai and the people are wondering, hey, where, where, you know, where is this guy? And, and, you know, he's getting the laws about the tabernacle and other things. But while he's gone, you know, the, the people create this golden calf and God gets angry. And he says, he's going to wipe, he tells Moses, he's going to wipe his people, his, his people out. And Moses in this amazing story engages with God and um, basically convinces God to change his mind and not wipe out these people, his people that he has declared that he is going to wipe out. And so this, we kind of, Exodus 32 is a really interesting, I guess, exposure to God's thoughts and his character. And at the end of that whole story in chapter 34, because the, the story kind of goes on for a little while, Exodus 32, 33, 34, God tells Moses, he, Moses asks to, to kind of see God. And God says, well, I will, I will show no one can see my face and live, but I will kind of display my glory to you. And then he, God declares his name. This is Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord. Again, the Hebrew there is Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So that, I think that characterization of God, at the, at the crux of this characterization, we see these tensions God is angry because he is just and he punishes for um, wickedness and injustice and oppression, but he is also um, loving. And the thing I like to point out there is he's slow to anger. So his anger is reduced or minimized or kind of encapsulated, but his love and the Hebrew there is hesed, this covenant loyalty Faithfulness is the best kind of love you could possibly imagine, deep, profound, in the context of a deep relationship. His hesed abounds. It just overflows. And so, yes, there's a tension, but, um, you know, the God's love is primary and his anger in these contexts is limited and secondary. But, yeah. 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 How much of God's anger in the Old Testament is actually tied up with this idea of God's holiness? I think um, that's a great question. I think that's a lot of it. And, you know, we see a number of places where that is made explicit um, and other places where it just seems to be implied. But um, God is unique and distinct, and that's part of an aspect of what it means for him to be holy. But another aspect of, for, for God to be holy is that he is righteous and he, is, he wants justice. And, and so there's this... Um, this unique sacredness about who God is that causes him to judge his people when they act in ways that are not righteous or just or holy. Yeah, so a lot of this anger really is an expression of holiness and the fact that you're dealing with a holy being who cannot tolerate sin. Mm. Yeah. No, I think, and I think that's, that's very true, that he, um, well, and you know, there's, there's, there's a lot that we, we could say about that. Yeah, but I mean, that's obviously... We, he cannot tolerate sin, and, and there are a number of ways that that gets manifested, obviously, in 
you know, the passage I was just talking about in Exodus 32, they were worshiping this golden calf that they were supposed to be in an exclusive relationship with God. And the, the, I, elsewhere I talk about it is like, it's, it's, they have just committed to be in relationship with God, an exclusive relationship. And it's almost like they're committing adultery on the honeymoon. And so um, that, that act of sin, that act of disobedience, rebellion is what, at least in this, in this context, provokes God to anger. Yeah. Is the God of the Old Testament really any different then from the God of the New Testament? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I start the book, I'm sort of a little bit tongue in cheek, um, asking a question, how do we reconcile? How do we reconcile the loving that. God of the Old Testament with the harsh God of the New Testament? I, I kind of flesh that out a little bit. People, yep. Wait a minute. That's not the way the question is usually asked. Um, I think the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same. I mean, the, the, the thing you could say is, well, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. And so God's name sort of in the Old Testament is Yahweh. Um, and, and the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, and the name that is used for for God in the New Testament, by far and away the most, is, is Jesus. Um, so in both cases, we see there's a, a different name, and each of those names have different implications and connotations. But Jesus makes this really clear. He and the Father are one. And um, they are, they're, you know, three distinct persons in the Trinity, but they are one in character. It's, it's the triune. There's a unity in there. And so I think the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. Jesus loved to quote from the Old Testament. Paul loved to quote from the Old Testament. So I think as we, it'd be easy to go to places in the Old Testament that talks about God as a, as a loving God. And it'd be easy to go to places in the New Testament where it talks about God as a God of judgment. And so these stereotypes that we have of the different Testaments while I understand them, I think they're really mischaracterizations, and we, we need to be thinking about God as one and, um, and to talk about what that, what that looks like. Yes, what was Jesus' perception of the Old Testament? Yeah, I mean, Jesus quoted the, New Test, the Old Testament all over the place. He, you know, when, when John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus, he, he, he quoted from the prophets, when, you know, even in places like the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has kind of this formula, you know, you have heard that is said, but I say to you, you know, on a superficial look at that, it sounds like, well, it sounds like he's, he's trying to overturn, overturn the Old Testament there. But then, you, you know, you look at what he says in chapter five there, um, you know, do not come to think, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, come not, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He saw all of what he's doing. You know, he starts his ministry in Luke chapter four with this quote: um, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, um, to, you know, to, you know, to declare good news." I mean, he's quoting Isaiah sixty-one. Jesus is, you know, it's hard to find a place in the in the New Testament when Jesus speaks where he is not either explicitly quoting an old the Old Testament or making multiple allusions to it. So yeah, Jesus, the Old Testament was Jesus's Bible and he loved it and he quoted from it frequently. In what sense is the Old Testament progressive, particularly I'm thinking of its acceptance of foreigners or its affirmation of women? Yeah, those, those, are, those are great questions. I, I think the, the, the thing that we see in the very first 
chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1 is all humans are made in the image of God. And I think as we think about issues of, well, you know, as I'm talking about in this book, sexism and racism, that has got to be, that truth has got to be foundational to how we understand God. And anything that seems to be sexist or racist, we need to kind of just keep going back to Genesis 1 there, that, that the first thing the Bible teaches about humans is they are um, image bearers of the divine. And, um, and so that, I think, is just shockingly progressive, if, if you want to talk about it that way. And then, yes, there are a lot of places that are problematic, but most, I think the vast majority of these, there's a way that the, the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament were very culturally engaged. They were part of a patriarchal culture that doesn't make sense to us um, and still doesn't, can't fully make, I mean, even to someone like a Bible nerd like me, there are just things that don't, I don't fully comprehend or fathom. But um, as we think about the Old Testament in its context, um, the laws about welcoming the foreigners were, were really shocking. And then in, look in the prophetic books, um, there are places that it does seem like the Israelites were, were very unique and God, they were God's people and they were God's separate people. But then you have books like Jonah, which makes it very clear that God is concerned about um, the Ninevites. And the Ninevites were like the total bad guys. They were the, the terrorists of, you know, whatever, 2,700 uh, years ago uh, in that time and place. So, you know, I, I, there's just so many stories of these foreigners that um, are shown mercy somehow welcomed into the family uh, of God and Jesus and then appear in Jesus's family tree, perhaps most famously Tamar and Mark and Matthew one and um, Rahab, the prostitute, uh, Ruth as well. So um, yeah, there's so much more that could be said about that. But yeah, I, I think um, as I read the Old Testament, I see a God that is welcoming um, people who have been marginalized, foreigners um, and, and women and wanting to um, elevate um, in both cases, their status. What's the significance of Jesus' foreign ancestors? You alluded to them just briefly, but can we flesh it out a bit? Yeah, I think um, it's that's that's it's just it's fascinating. I, I remember mm. um, a, a sermon I heard. Oh, I was probably over thirty years ago, thirty-five years ago, on Matthew one, and I just there aren't many sermons that I remember like thirty-five years later. But um, the shocking thing is. You know, the, the, the first woman mentioned in the New Testament, you might think it would be Eve or Sarah or maybe Leah. Leah, you know, gave birth to, you know, six of the, of the, of the sons of Jacob. But it wasn't any of those women. It was Tamar. And, you know, read Tamar's story in Genesis 38. That's pretty shocking. This woman who pretends to be a prostitute in order for um, Judah to kind of convince Judah <laughs> seduce Judah. I don't know if you want to put it that way. And, and Judah and Tamar have sex and she conceives and gives birth to twins. And there she is in verse three of, of Jesus' family tree. And then it keeps going. Uh, a couple of verses later, you encounter um, Rahab, another, well, she actually was a prostitute. We find that out in Joshua too. Um, Ruth was a, a, a woman from Moab. And then, and then the, the wife of Uriah. It's interesting that um, David's Bathsheba there isn't mentioned by name, but she's called the wife of Uriah, which tells you something's not right. Um, if she's, you know, according to Matthew one, she's still connected to Uriah. But for me, what that says is Jesus, his family, I mean, his 
you know, we love to think about our ancestors. I'm actually working on a commentary on Chronicles right now. So I'm thinking a lot about genealogy. Uh, I've been doing a little research on my, well, actually my uncle who died in World War II in the South Pacific. Um, and it's been kind of interesting for me to think about my own family tree a little bit there. But most of us are excited about the, the, the famous or, you know, wonderful or brilliant, you know, amazing ancestors we have and that kind of somehow that sheds light on us and how wonderful we have become because we've had this, well, for Jesus there, there's, there are these, these, what well, most ancient genealogies don't include women. And the fact that they chose these women, all of them who were, I mean, ultimately, I would say all of them were somehow victimized and somehow many of them, at least two or three of them, at least were sort of sexually victimized on some level tells me that one Jesus family, followers of Jesus um, need to be inclusive of people that may be shocking. At least a couple of these uh, women had, well, one was a prostitute, the other one pretended to be a prostitute. So God's family, Jesus's family, the followers of Jesus need to be concerned about people that may not have typically felt welcomed in these contexts. And, and that we, yeah, foreigners, people of, you know, that have kind of a, a some kind of a skeleton in the closet, if you will. And, but that's, that's how, that's how the New Testament begins. And mm. I just think that that's shocking um, and wonderful at the same time. To what extent does the Old Testament portray women as godlike? Yeah, that's, um, um, I think, you know, again, we go back to, to, to Genesis 1. We talk about they're created in the image of God. Uh, and Genesis 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. Um, you know, so, you know, we could do kind of comparisons between different versions of the, the Genesis, the creation account. I won't, probably won't, don't need to go into details of that now. But in Genesis 2, the man, um, and, you know, sometimes we could just call him Adam. The text doesn't actually call him Adam by name yet. It's just kind of the man. It's not good for the man to be alone. So God makes for him an Azer Konegdo. Uh, that's the Hebrew. Um, uh, King James translates that as helpmate. Um, other translations, helper as partner, helper, etc. But the Azer Konegdo there, the Hebrew, Azer, the word for help or helpmate, um, is a word that is often used for God in the, in the Old Testament. So in this case, we see that this partner who, you know, we will eventually call Eve is the helper in the same sense that God is a helper to humans. Um, you, you know, we, we might have a tendency to think uh, a helper is like a personal assistant or a secretary or someone that kind of does your dirty work, a slave. But that is not the connotation of Azer, the, the, the word that gets translated as helper here. But it's, um, well, it's, it's used mainly for God. So that's yet another way that this, the, the woman, um, at least on some level, have this connection to God. And then I think we, we see this throughout. God, God interacts with women and, and seeks them out, even in a highly pa patriarchal culture. Um, look at how he interacts with uh, Hagar, a few chapters later in, in Genesis, it's really kind of wonderful and almost shocking in another way. One of the uh, passages or one of the uh, top parts of the Old Testament that people most struggle with, I think, and you deal with this in your book, is God's command to Israel to kill the Canaanites. What's your response to that problematic text? Yeah, I think for me, this is the most problematic part of the Bible. And when people ask me about the Canaanites, the first thing I want to tell them is, this is really troubling. 
to me. Two, thank you for asking me about this. And this is a three, maybe this is a, it's a really hard question. And I, it's one that I struggle with myself. I think we need to resist the temptation when people ask us a question, you know, maybe it's like a, it's an apologetic type question about the Bible to jump in. And because um, for some reason we're uncomfortable and like, we're worried that God's glory might somehow be um, defamed by th- someone even asking this kind of question. So we're going to, we got to jump in really fast and, and we got to sort them out. And I think sometimes when we do that, we, well, one, we could belittle people or, disparage them and create an environment that they would realize they might not feel welcomed or they might feel like their questions make them less worthy or um, somehow that God doesn't want them to be struggling with questions. And so I think the first thing I want to do is when someone asks me this question is I want to validate it and just say, yeah, that's hard. And then, and then I just pause and I'm, I'm not going to jump in and, you know, ram an answer down their throat. So I'm just going to pause and say, this is just deeply troubling to me. Um, now, there are um, a, a variety of people that have written on this subject, and, um, and I, could, I could recommend some of these authors, some of whom I agree with, some of whom I don't agree with. You know, the, the thing is, there are people that basically say, well, on some level, they end up kind of saying that what happened was fiction. Either God didn't say it, or um, um, God didn't want it to happen somehow, the way the text is described is um, it's, it's culturally conditioned, but, you know, the text is kind of wrong on some level, you know, while that, that, that response is very attractive to me because it, the problem kind of goes away. I, I don't feel comfortable with that response. And likewise, kind of on the flip side, I see sometimes people that say, well, who am I to question God? You know, God said it, God said it, I do it, you know, enough said, you know, it, it's, it's solved. Well, I don't think that that doesn't very satisfying to me either, because I think scripture is full of people that ask God tough questions. You know, even Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's got to be the psalmist is asking God tough questions all the time. So it must be okay for us to be asking God tough questions. I I think that maybe the three things I say, um, well, maybe four, there is an element, an aspect of hyperbole in the text. Because we, we do know that there are places it says that everybody was completely wiped out. And then a little bit later on, we realize, oh, doesn't, apparently not everybody was wiped out. Um, the book of um, Judges makes it clear that there's still a lot of Canaanites left in the land. So there's maybe an element of hyperbole there. The Bible does make it really clear that people are being judged. And we don't have all the details of that. Um, and I, while I feel uncomfortable with judgment on some level, we do know that some of the things that the Canaanites were involved with were really unjust. Um, they, amongst other things, child sacrifice. So there is that. The other, the other thing I, I like to, to say here is the text also does talk about God driving out the Canaanites. In fact, that image of driving people out, you find, um, particularly in Deuteronomy, portions of, jo- um, of um, and portions of Joshua and Judges. So it's for me that's less problematic that instead of just being completely wiped out and annihilated. God was also kind of driving them out. It's almost like different texts are emphasizing um, different things. And then the other thing that I, I like to say here is everybody that showed hospitality to the Israelites were in turn shown hospitality. Um, and perhaps the most um, notable example of that is the Canaanite prostitute from Jericho, Rahab, who um, shows hospitality to the two spies, 
risks her life to betray her city because she knows God is at work. And she knows God is God of, the, of, of heaven and earth. And so she commits treason to, to, and risks her life to save these two spies. And so not only is her life spared when, when the city of Jericho is wiped out, but all of her family. And then she marries, she marries into, into the family. And she's like, uh, as you work it out with Ruth, I think she's like Boaz's um, grandmother or something. So the book of Ruth kind of connects into, um, into her. And then obviously she shows up in Jesus's family tree. So Rahab, uh, she actually, she shows up in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. Mm-hmm. And then she shows up in the book of James as well. So Rahab, this Canaanite is kind of this hero and she has this incredible legacy. She was a foreigner, but she showed hospitality to the Israelites. And to me, that gives me hope that when I'm troubled by this story, but, but the, the people that show hospitality are shown hospitality. And God does, if I remember correctly, allow something like 430 years for this culture to turn itself around, doesn't he, before? You're talking about that's being right. slow to anger. So there's the slowness that's and the patience. Right. There is, yep. that's, 430 no, years is a long that. time. <laughs> yeah. It's a long time. No, because God says that in Genesis 15 that they're going to get they're going to get judged. Um, the iniquity is not complete, and God is very slow to anger before this judgment does um, eventually come. Okay, well, our time's just about up, Dave. It's been a fascinating discussion. But what would you say to someone who's listening to this podcast, who's struggling with the thought that uh, that God may be angry, sexist, or racist? Where do they go in Scripture? What do you? Uh, what are some resources you might advise them to to read or research? Yeah, I mean, well, one again to say you're not alone. And there are a lot of people out there that um, are struggling with those similar questions. Um, I would encourage them to, you know, to, to the extent that they are people of prayer, pour their heart out to God in prayer. So that's, I think that's a, that's for me, that's a good place to go to gather some friends that you'd be willing to talk and particularly study scripture with about this, you know, and again, depending on where people are at, Again, I teach Old Testament. I love the Old Testament, but I can't get enough of Jesus. I, I want to get people into the Gospels as much as possible. And so when people are struggling with God and God's character, I just, I say, go to Jesus. Um, spend time reading, reading what Jesus does. And Jesus gets angry. Jesus shows emotions. Jesus is certainly sorrowful. He weeps on at least a couple of occasions that we know of. Um, but, and Jesus can sort of seem, seem mean a lot. He, he, there's a lot of people, particularly religious he's a tough leaders. Talker. He can be a tough he talker. He is. Yeah. He's tough. Particularly religious leaders and his disciples. He can be kind of mean to, very critical. But as you look at the reason that's behind it, I would say that there's, it's love. And he's trying, to, uh, he's trying to look out for marginalized people, particularly when they are being bullied or exploited by you know, the powers that be, the religious people or... Um, and his disciples are starting to have more power as well. So if people are really struggling, spend time in prayer, spend time with other believers where you can work through your questions. And then, you know, I, again, go to the gospels. And if you want beyond that, I love the Psalms. The Psalms talk about God in beautiful, figurative, emotive, sometimes problematic language. And the Psalms are basically, you know, I, I've had faculty professors who have said 150 things you can say to God. And I think that the, the Psalms helps help me when I'm struggling with some of these things. 
Indeed, they're magnificent, aren't they? David Lamb, thank you so much for your time. The Alan A. McRae Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Faculty at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania in the States. Thanks so much for your time, David. My pleasure. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.